The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a long time coming. (laughs) My my guest today is the great Don Winslow, who is um, one of my favorite writers, has been for a long time. And Don and I attempted to do a podcast a couple years ago uh, upon the publication of his last book, and uh, it got lost. It's the lost episode. And people have been asking us online. We uh, go back and forth online a lot, and folks have long asked us to have a conversation with microphones in front of us. So Don Winslow, who's the author of books uh, such as uh, The Winter of Frankie Machine, The Dawn Patrol, Savages, the Cartel. All those books are books I've read uh, the day that they came out and, and loved. And his new book, I think, is his crowning achievement. It's called The Force. And um, Don Winslow, thanks so much for being here. Man. Thanks so much for having me, man. Let's let's little reunion here. It is. It's a reunion. I mean, you know, you and I have had many false starts in life. <laughs> we have. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, Dave and I uh, basically only have two projects in our, our, our lives that we thought should have been movies and, and weren't. And one of them, and the one that really crushed us for a long time, and you, was your book, The Winter of Frankie Machine, which um, we campaigned to get and got to do it and wrote a script that worked. And we had Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro attached to it, and it crumbled. Yeah, it did, you know. And, uh, and we talked the whole, I mean, one of the things that I loved about that experience was getting to know you because we loved the book so much that normally when you adapt the book, you just take it and go. But we included you in the process. You did, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We got to know each other. We got to be friends. So yeah. So, so something good came something out. Something came out of it. But there someday maybe um, a movie will. So man, I, I got to just say, um, this fucking book blows me away. Oh, force. thank you. You know, Stephen Thanks, King Brian. says that it's the the Godfather of the modern era about police. And when you and I talked before, I said I'm always reminded of. Um, Mario Puzo and Fools Die when I read your stuff. Hmm. And and I have to imagine that hearing something like this being compared to that book means something to you. Oh, my God. Amazing. You know, look, The Godfather is iconic. You know, both the book and the film. You know, we're always quoting it, right? Yes. Every time it's on and it's always on. You know, we'll watch five minutes of it. Don't you do that when you're clicking through the... Well, I can't watch five minutes. I have to watch the whole thing. I'm more disciplined. I mean, I spend two... Yeah, you are. You're a novelist. I'm a screenwriter, so I keep going. You keep going, right. Well, so, I mean, I just figure it's work because basically I pepper... Dave and I pepper our show with Billy with uh, Godfather's references. You do, absolutely, yeah. So, and by the way, I love the show. Oh, well, thank you. That's yeah. sweet. Um, I'm, I love hearing that. That's great. And you've been very kind about it to me um, online and uh, in person. But I, I want to. St- I, I, here's the thing: when I think about your work, and you know, I haven't read all your books, but I've read almost all of your books, and certainly all of your modern books, like the books that you love that you've written. I've read them some more than once, and especially in this day and age, I've come to think that what really f- compels you a lot, and what I find fascinating in reading, is this question of code um, among men primarily. But um, code and, and hewing to a certain code is sort of an old-fashioned idea in a lot of movies. But I think you raise it as a question very often, which is what happens when people substitute code for actual honor? Mm-hmm. What are the consequences of that? Yeah, yeah. 
um, because you're someone who values code and a uh, code of loyalty, yet it does seem in your work you're aware of its limitations and of the danger of believing in a code above all else. Can you talk about that a little? You know, I think I'm aware of the danger of believing in anything above all else. You know what I mean? I, I grew up uh, in a neighborhood where code was everything. You know, I grew up in, you know, Providence, Rhode Island area. And, uh, you know, in that neighborhood, you know, you kept your mouth shut. You were loyal to your friends. Uh, you were loyal to your family. You were loyal to your hockey team, you know. And, and that was an ethic that, that I grew up with. So, sure, I found it fascinating. And, and by the way, I mean, you know, all kidding aside, it's something I really believe in. I've, I've often said I think loyalty is the prime human virtue. I don't respect people who aren't loyal. But that's where it gets tricky. It does. Because I know that that's how you are. And part of the reason that you and I, through some like professional difficulties that affected us, we always not, had warm feelings and considered one another a friend is right. because we actually kept our compact with one another. We did. And that mental means a ton to us too. But the books, right? So The Godfather's all about uh, how a code like that can, can save you while it damns your soul, maybe. Right. But your books, let's, The Force, is about a guy with this incredible sense of code. And I, and I think in the world we live in, where uh, loyalty to a certain kind of ideal has been stretched, stressed more than anything else, yeah. as what certain people really value. It does seem like the book is questioning, this book more than others of yours, is others have questioned institutional loyalty, but this one seems to actually be questioning the whole I idea. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to, I've been wanting to write this book forever, and I, I finally felt that two things had sort of come together. I'm going to answer your question, I promise. I want to hear all, I want to hear all this. That uh, it, was the, it was the time for me personally to write this book because I, I think I finally had the skills to write it, finally had the chops to write this book, you know, after 20, 30 years of doing this. Uh, but that also it was the time socially and politically to write this book. So this the subject of what are you loyal to comes up, you know, and, and I wanted to write a book where a guy and a cop in this case is faced with impossible choices in regard to loyalty. Do I be loyal to my brother cops who are one kind of family or am I loyal to my family, you know, my, my blood family, my wife and my kids when those things come into conflict? Am I loyal to the, the oath I took, <laughs> you know, when I graduated the academy or am I loyal to a deeper sense of myself that's matured and evolved on this job? Am I loyal to my snitches, right, as opposed to my bosses? Am I loyal to my girlfriend? You know, so I, I think there are a lot of conflicts in this book and a lot of questions of loyalty. And questions about the lies we tell ourselves. Absolutely. When we're changing yeah. uh, our allegiance. No, absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because... I was always aware in writing this book that Denny Malone is telling, the main character, telling himself a lot of lies. That walk he takes, so there's a moment in the middle of the book, and I won't give it away, but 
his life gets turned upside down. Yeah. And he takes a walk. And it's it's an incredible feat of writing. I also want to say the book's hilarious. So for 200 pages, you are rollicking and, and laughing along. I mean, knowing a heavy sense of doom, but but your use of language, you talk about the skill. I mean, the use of language is fucking hilarious and incredible the whole time. And um, But there's this walk, and on this walk, as your character's talking to himself and starting to make kind of death row deals with himself, um, you see him almost become another version and then own that version. Um, And I'm wondering what you see in the world and what you see in people that gave you the, the sort of insight into, well, we... We tell ourselves that there are people who hold this code, but what happens when you are really tested? Yeah, yeah. You know, look, I mean, Denny's a complex guy, you know, and I think he's a guy who started out to do good and then starts taking shortcuts and then ends up doing some some really bad things. But I, I think, you know, Brian, he's not unique in that regard. And I, I think a lot of times, all of us, when we walk down a road, we don't know what's at the end of that road. That's obvious. But at some point along that road, we've also forgotten what was at the beginning of the road. Well, yeah, that because when we meet this guy, so in many of your books, or in, some, in a few of my favorite of your books, we are meeting somebody who by all traditional standards, their, their soul should no longer be in peril because it's already, it's already doomed. Doomed, yeah. Um, Yet you create opportunities for little moments of salvation. And, but often these guys can't take those roads. Yeah. Often they can't find those moments of salvation. You know, after this walk, that character tells a lie to somebody. Earlier in the book, he's sworn to us he would never tell a lie to. Right. And um, it's a lie of omission, but it's a lie. And then he continues to lie. Uh, do you really think we're all that fucked up? Is it impossible to not... Because you also love, it's, I guess the thing is you obviously love these characters. I too, do, yeah, yeah. Because you've imbued Denny with characteristics we'd all like to have. An incredible sense of poise under pressure. A, a huge ability to uh, laugh at himself and his surroundings. All, all sorts of, you know, he's very smart. He's very tough. What fascinates you about these kind of people? Well, look, you, you know, you, you talk to these cops, you know, especially in these special units. So you talk to veteran detectives. These guys are rock stars. They're they're movie stars. They, you know these people, they walk into a room and they have a charisma and a personal magnetism and an ego and pride. That's what helps them do their job. What you realize is without those abilities, and by the way, I think also without the self-deception abilities, they can't do that job. So these guys walk into a precinct house, heads turn. They're out on the street. People know them or even just sense that power and that feeling. And, and then when you really think about it, you know, these are guys who go through doors. On the other side of that door, they don't know what's there. Guns, dogs, grenades. They go through the door anyway. And that takes a certain kind of personality and a certain kind of confidence and a self-deceptive belief 
that nothing can ever happen to him. Yeah. And so that kind of, because you're a writer yeah. who can't live that way, there's right. something about sure. that. Oh, of course. Come on. To you. Absolutely appeals to me. Sure. I think, but I think it appeals to everybody. But it's also, it raises the question of when someone is, is that we're very quick, right? So when this would all have gotten reported then in the news, we would all be quick to only hate. Absolutely. And it does seem like you're interested in the question in many of your books of uh, what happens when someone, um, at the same time, someone is doing good for for some segment of society, they're benefiting themselves at the same time. Yeah. And how our whole system is set up, incentivize, it, our whole system sort of uh, incentivizes people to do that. You know, you're, you're, you're quite concerned with systemic failure in these in these ways, it seems. That's the book I wanted to write, you know? I well, want Cartel is that book, too. Cartel is that book, too. Look, Brian, you know, years ago now, it seems, well, it was. I was writing a book called The Power of the Dog, which is the predecessor to uh, the cartel. And uh, I had a 2014-page manuscript, and I was lost. I was in the weeds, I mean, miserably. I remember one time just laying my head on the keyboard, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. This thing's a mess, a mess. And I, I had to step back and ask myself the question, what do my characters really want? What are they, you know, the basic writer's question, duh, but I didn't have it. No, you have to keep asking. It. Yeah, I didn't have it. And that's why the book was a mess. And that's why it was obese. And, and that's why it was all over the place. So I stopped writing for two or three weeks, which is extremely rare for me. And I just walked around and thought, you know, we should maybe do that, you know, think sometimes. And I finally came up with, with this, because I think this is what I've been trying to do my whole career as a crime writer. It's the following question. How do you live decently in an indecent world? And I think most of my characters, you know, Art Keller from cartel and power of the dog and frankie machine and you know all of them really and denny malone of the force are either consciously or unconsciously asking themselves that question and trying to get it answered and most of them never do but that's the key question and, and for me in crime writing and, and i'm very proudly within that genre uh that to me is the key question because we're writing about an indecent world, an indecent system, to get back to the question that you asked me, with individuals inescapably inside that system trying to find a way to live decently. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about because often it seems like these characters have forgotten that question and there's a moment when maybe... They remember it. They remember it, yeah. Within the thing, usually a moment of great peril. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when they find out where they've, how far they've fallen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but that question of what it means to try to be decent is also in a system that doesn't reward decency. Right, right. And I see, see I think Denny, you know, Denny really cares about the people in the neighborhoods that, that he serves. I think he cares deeply about the victims. That's one thing I really learned about cops and working on this book is how deeply they care. Um, but about, it seems to me, um, about who they decide are, the, are worthy to be considered the victims. Oh, oh indeed. Indeed. And, and so, 
they will make some very severe judgments about who those people are. And they don't have much confusion in their minds about that, by the way. And when you're writing someone like that, do you have to, can you start writing before you, when do you figure out how to think like the main character of your uh, of your book? I mean, there are they're all individual characters. I mean, there is definitely a Winslow protagonist. Yeah, yeah. Who I think has a a, a core set of questions and values. Right. Yeah, I agree. So, is it in turn? Are you mostly trying to get the exterior details right, or the? No. You're mostly trying to get the interior details. Yeah, right. you, you know this, and we've talked about this. I, I think the exterior details are relatively easy. You know, and they they require work and they require, they require research, skill. of course. They require technical skill, but but they're relatively easy. What is harder, much harder, and again, I think you'd agree, are the interior details, the thoughts, the emotions, that inner life, particularly with with people who are constantly telling themselves lies. So you have an inner life and an inner inner life and an inner inner life, and and every once in a while you're penetrating to that real core, which is just pure brutal truth. Well, yeah, a lot of the time it seems like what you're writing about and what you're interested in is the sort of contract between men. And there's this one tiny little, and I think about it in regard, look, it's very hard for me not to talk about the president sometimes. So, and I know, I mean, you know, you, uh, because, you know, he is this idea run amok in many ways of um, a certain conception of what it means to be a man. To be a man, yeah. Um, and uh, there's this, just this little, I, I was reading the book and I knew you were coming in and I just like circled this. Some the main character has been asked a favor by a, a, a mayor's aide. Yeah. And they're going to um, they're gonna meet and he shows up, our, our, main, our main guy, and the mayor's aide shows up late and uh, he said, Ned Chandler bustles in a minute later, looks around, spots Malone and sits down at his table. I'm sorry, I'm late. No problem, Malone says. He's annoyed. Chandler's the one with the ask, so he should be there on time, if not early, he thinks. You don't come for a favor and ma- then make the guy you want something from wait for you. Right. Now, that is a line that any protagonist in one of your books that is clearly something you really believe. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I'm like, I felt like, oh, that's Winslow just giving us, you, know, you may hide in a genre, but you write very, per- I guess because I'm trying to get it is, to me, this is one, this is as much one long personal book as like a book by Trollope or something. Like, like you're writing to me this, uh, uh, all about Don Winslow all the time. I believe you're writing about the way you see the world all the time. Sometimes. I, I Yeah. I mean, this book is the only book I've ever written that's seen through one character's point of view. Yeah, I've noticed it. I, I, I noticed uh, when we didn't go in, into the in the room in the whorehouse with right. the other guys. Exactly. You're staying with him I stayed the whole with time. Denny the whole time, which is unusual for me, and I think, frankly, harder to do. But listen, I, you know... I, we, let, let's just be blunt. Let's be honest with ourselves. You know, as writers, I mean, we write from our own experience. There's nothing else we can write from at the end of the day. Well, it's, it separates good writers from not good. We write our, like, I, I, good writers write their obsessions. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are certain things, I think, about being a guy, being a man, trying to live decently in this world. There are some things that I learned from my old man, you know. There are some things that I picked up on my own. 
uh, and uh, sure, they're in there. When you go through life, though, so like I feel the exact my my friend Mike Birbiglia feels this way too, and he's that a half hour of his comedy special is about when people are late, the selfishness of lateness. Essentially, I, I hate it. Yeah, but but as just a sign of sort of like those kind of political people who yeah. will bullshit you and when they need you act like they're your friend sure but i often wonder this about you like how do you get through the world is the is i mean are you just constantly walking around a state of uh, disappointment about the way people do (laughs) don't live up to what they they're supposed to live up to i'm not i'm really not uh it's it's one thing that, that my father drilled into me and he always said look Expect more from yourself than you expect from other people, uh, and and you'll be a happier guy. And he was a military guy. He was right? a military guy. You know, seventeen years old with the Marines on Guadalcanal. You know, spent twenty years then in the Navy. You know, but yeah, the promptness thing was a deal. Was that was uh, if uh, if you weren't ten minutes early <laughs> with the older Don Winsley, you were late. You know. And have you raised your own son with the same set of... I'm afraid that I have. But you can raise your son, but you sure as hell can't raise your wife, you know. And uh, my wife, I've always said, baby, I I shouldn't buy you a watch. I should buy you a sundial because that's just about, you know, as precise in time as you can get. You have to watch Mike Birbiglia's latest stand-up special. I should. I love him. It's all about this question. No, no, because... His wife's late to a yoga class, and right. that has she's asked him to come to, and it's a great, <laughs> it's a really great, and I know it's all, I know it's all true. My wife's the most punctual human in the world. Is that right? She made me a, I, I was always on time, yeah, but she made me, she made more my time. better in every way, and, and that's one of the big ways. She's yeah, yeah. just always. I'm uh, early super, for everything. It yeah. hurts my stomach when I'm running late. Me too. Yeah, I agree. Well, you got here early, and we started early. Um, did. Yep. I mean, related to this idea, because I, 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 I've been trying to think a lot about the Winslow character as a way to get windows into who you are. Because you're, although you're on social media now, you are still a private kind of a person. Pretty private person, yeah. But it seems you're also interested in um, what happens when people don't understand the limits. Uh, like you, you write about people with great capability, but if they don't understand the limits of that capability, they're going to walk into trouble. And it's when I wrote this down about savages i was like savages is all about that and it seems like a certain kind of arrogance you admire yep but for you it's like the modern achilles heel it's the tragic flaw you know listen i uh um, as a kid six seven years old i loved to read shakespeare that was my thing i was that kind of geeky kid who was flunking english in high school but going home and reading shakespeare sure right so uh, uh I'm schooled, I'm versed in that tragic flaw and the tragic character arc. And, and one thing we see time and again, going back to ancient Greek literature and up through Shakespeare and up through the present, is hubris. Hubris is the thing. Sure. It's the thing, you know, that we can fly so high, uh, you know, and people who are gifted, you know, with great talents, whatever they happen to be, fly so high and then fly too high, fly too close to the sun. And come crashing. Down. How do you avoid falling prey to it yourself? When do you think part of it? I, I often think that I'm I'm lucky that 
my like career didn't really start till I was 30 and then in yeah. increments it's it's yes. all happened we have that in common yeah so do you feel that that's a helpful yeah, thing for yeah, you that a- that the, the real great successes for you happened as as have happened as you've gotten older yeah i think you listen you don't think that when you're young right no no it just makes you when you're rejected how many yeah. publishers rejected your 15 15 publishers rejected your first book including the one i'm with now <laughs> that's really yeah <laughs> i hope you charged them a little bit extra for you that know fact. We'll, we'll see but um yeah i i think that that by the time my first book was published and you know i was six or seven books into my career before i could quit my day job i'd been pretty beaten up you know uh, I, I knew about failure. Personally. Yeah. I, I knew about how to survive failure. I knew that I was not God's gift to writing. You know, what I wanted and what I want is to make a decent living while I do the work that I love. You know? Uh, and I think that that came with a slightly older perspective. That's really fascinating because the books... You know, you once told me you don't love the first... I forget which one. One of the books wasn't like your very favorite of your <laughs> some early book. Yeah, but <clears throat> but you write with such confidence, and even before you were really successful, the books are feel like they're written by someone who isn't afraid to show how much he loves using words. That's probably true. You know what I mean? When when look, uh, it takes a lot of a weird kind of ego to publish a book or make a movie or a television show, doesn't it? Because what are you saying to people? You're saying, what I do is worthy of your time and money. Yes. Right? Especially your time. And what else is there? Time is life. Yes. So on the one hand, there's that ego, right? That says, man, I wrote this. You should read it. Right? (laughs) Uh, So when when I sit down at the desk, or increasingly stand up at the desk, by the way, um... I have to psych myself into it. I feel like I'm a pitcher coming in at the ninth inning. Throw strikes, baby. That's all I want you to You're do. You're Al Robofsky or something. Exactly. You have to be the mad Hungarian. You have to put yourself in that That's trance. That's right. Throw strikes. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, and so I do. I put myself in that state of mind that I can do this like you wouldn't effing believe. You know? Now, the hour before that, the few hours after that, no, I, I I'm not that guy, you know. But but when when I step up to bat to mix metaphors, uh, you're I, staying in baseball. It's fine. Thank you. That puppy's going over the left field fence, right? It just is. And so, okay, for a lot of the people who listen to this, so I agree. We have to we all have to uh, hypnotize ourselves, yeah. to do this work, yeah. Yeah, some of the scenes in the force, you know, with and they're all with Denny, but there's some of the scenes where Denny's especially angry or especially kind of worked up. I would take the the hip hop music that's alluded to in the book and pump it up on the speaker. N.W.A. or the modern music. Yeah, all of whatever, whatever mood I was in, to get stoked, to get mad. Love it. I'm kind of a a, a method writer, you know. Some of the softer scenes, you know, particularly between Malone and, and Claudette. Then I've got the, the jazz on, you know, and, and try to slide in, into that feeling. I write to music. A lot of people don't do it, but I write to music all the time. I do all the time. Uh, I, it's, um, I don't write to music in headphones as much. I like it yeah. on a exactly. speaker. Yep. 
in headphones, sometimes it's too intrusive. It's too much, too much. But yeah. if I have it on in the room, it, yeah. it it really helps me find the rhythm of yeah the scene I'm writing. So you do that. Yeah. Do you I also have a heavy punching first? bag in the office. You do? Yeah. That's a great thing for you to say, even if it weren't true. But it just it goes I'm with a, the character really well. I'm afraid it's true. I'm afraid it's true. There, there are times in that, that psych up thing yeah. where, where I just go and wail on that. Where is your office in relation to your house? It's a minute walk. So, so you get, can you talk about your, your create your routine? What does it look like? My routine is exactly that, man. It's a routine. Tell I'm me. A, I'm a working class blue collar writer. I have routine too. I want to hear it. Yeah. What do you do? Uh, I get up at five. I'm at my desk at 530. I write till about 10. I hike or run four to six miles. We'll kind of mix depending on how I feel. I come back and I work till five thirty or six. So, how many hours are you writing a day? About ten. Actually writing, writing or researching, yeah. Right, real work, but in the Working. morning, easier to generate pages first thing in the morning. Absolutely, or both or absolutely more of the research in the afternoon, the yes. writing in the morning. Yes, yeah, yeah. And when you have to deal with phone calls, where do you throw that in? Uh, do, when do you kind of open yourself up to interact? Afternoon. Afternoon. Yeah, that so that those first four and a half hours, prime sacrosanct. Time. Do you eat before? Uh, I have an egg. <laughs> Between <laughs> this five, is embarrassing, man. No, man. No, this is what five, people need to hear. About five fifteen. Because I wonder if <clears throat> did you have to when you were still working a day job and you were writing six novels, right? Right. Because people always say they can't do this because of the time. And I mean, we wrote our first. Dave and I wrote our first movie, the one that got made. I got a career by doing it two hours a day every day before work. Exactly. So I want to hear from you how you did it. No, that's exactly how I did it, man. I was failing as a writer. And what were you doing for a job? Uh, I was cobbling together a living at the time doing three things. I was directing Shakespeare at summer programs at Oxford University. I was, this sounds so weird, but it's the truth. I'm not going to lie to you. I was leading photographic safaris, and I was a private investigator or a trial consultant. So I was traveling all over the world. I'd be in Connecticut or California as a PI. I would then fly to London and then be at Oxford University in some crap room and you know eating horrible food in the dining hall and directing Twelfth Night or whatever. Which had to be kind of fun. It's great. I would think. I loved it. I, I've loved all my work, by the way. And then I would fly down to Kenya. Amazing. And take people around and chase leopards, you know. So... One of those points, a professor, he's a professor at Barnard up here, up the road, dear friend of mine that I taught for at Oxford, uh, Jim Basker. And he said to me, he said, you know, you've been talking about writing a book for years. Why don't you stop screwing around and do it? Well, it's like painful. How old do you think you were? 30. That's great. Guessing. And you hadn't written a book yet? No, sir. Tried. Yeah, sure. Late at night, alone, whatever, but not in a as a more in a dilettante-ish way. Yeah. Then yeah, yeah. Then like going, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. So then after Basker, then I heard Joe Wombau, who's since become a friend, yeah. on the radio, and he said that when he was a homicide cop in you know uh, L.A., wanting to be a writer, that he wrote ten pages a day, no matter what, and those those three words were the key for me. No matter what. And I thought to myself, I can't do 10. I can do five. You did right away. You said that. Yep. You were under, you understood, I'm going to commit to this. Yes. In a way that makes sense to me. Yep. And then about a month later, I had um, malaria and dysentery. I'm sitting outside of a fire in Kenya thinking, man, you better start. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, life goes fast. Life goes fast. Life goes fast and it's it's, you know, treacherous. So So what'd you do? How'd you get to to start? I got a yellow manuscript pad and I started in a tent. It's a true story. Uh and I wrote five pages. I had a title. I had nothing else. A cool breeze on the underground was a phrase that had stuck in my head for years. Because I was at the uh, Leicester Square tube stop in London, you know, chasing some runaway around or something. I don't know. Uh, and it was the hottest day in English recorded history up to that point. And this cool breeze came up the tunnel inexplicably. And this phrase, a cool breeze on the underground, went to my head. So I had a title, nothing else, nothing else. And... Uh, I sat down to write. I wrote a cool breeze on the underground on the first page of this yellow manuscript pad. And then I flipped the page and I, all of a sudden I'm writing about this kid on the Upper West Side where you live uh, who's a pickpocket and gets caught. And the guy who catches him trains him in the arts of being a, sort of a PI. It was sort of kind of a Dickensian kind of a thing. And eventually he goes to London where he feels this cool breeze on the underground. And you didn't have an outline for the book. <laughs> and did you do Dude, the thing? Nothing. Did you write five fucking yes. pages a day? Five pages a day, no matter what. No matter if I was tired, no matter if I was on a train or a plane or in a tent in Africa or China, if I was back in Lincoln, Nebraska, where we were living at the time, no matter what, five pages a day. Would you go back and read the stuff as you were going? No. You kept it in your. You kind of kept it in your head. Yeah. And what about now? Do you go back? Do yeah, you, I go back because I have lot, to go back. Yeah. I go back yeah, a lot. I retread a lot. If look, I'm having a crap day. You know, if I'm having one of those days where I couldn't write a jelly label, you know, then what I'll do is I'll go back in the book and fix things and make it better and you know rewrite and rewrite and that usually gets me back to being able to write somewhat do you, decently. Do you think you were aware back then? That all makes sense from a technical standpoint. Um, what I was thinking about is, uh, so you start, you just have this I idea. And it's interesting that the guy said to you, you wanted to be a writer. I mean, what did that mean to you, do you think? Right? A lot of people walk around with this idea that they're meant to be something other than what they are. Mm -hmm. How do you think you landed on this idea that what you were meant to do was this? I, I always thought it. I thought it since I was a little kid. A secret was it a secret dream, like yeah, absolutely. It wasn't something you shared at home or no, with your no, friends no. growing up. No, 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 no. But it was your own secret late at night yeah. notion of who you were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I said it to one teacher, high school biology teachers, who I'm still dear friends with, uh, who had a jazz class at his house, taught us all about jazz, which is still a huge part of my life. Bill McEnany, and we were sitting in a restaurant one afternoon. I was 18, I think. And uh, talking about life, you know. And I said, I'm going to be a novelist. And uh, I'm going to make my living and do really well as a novelist. That's the only time I ever said it. And what did he say? He said, yeah, you could do that. Ah, oh, it's great. And uh, this past Christmas, we're sitting in the same restaurant, the Rat Skeller in uh, Charleston, Rhode Island. And I said, Bill, I don't know if you remember... <laughs> A long time ago. <laughs> did he hold a memory of it at all? He did. And uh, I said, I, we sat at this booth and I told you this. 
That's amazing and that you were able to make that promise to yourself and find a way to keep it. Yeah, but then I lost it for years, Brian. You know, I, I think that's what happens. You know, do you think happens. you were scared? I mean, do you Absolutely. think you were scared of failing at it or scared of saying that's who you like? Scared of the hubristic aspect of both. It? I was scared at failing at it because, frankly, the emotional cost of failing at it felt like something I couldn't pay. Ugh. Uh, I mean, I'm saying that because, yeah, that, you know, I was 30 before I started writing and uh, I know I was, you know, this idea of what if I'm not as smart as I think I am? Right. Or what what if if I'm not as talented? What if I have no talent? What if I give the word, you know, it's easy to walk around being like, I have a gift for words, but what if I, you know, what if I... uh, you know, try. And in fact, I don't. Right. And look, I mean, around this time, I was I was starting to really read crime fiction. You know, I was reading Elmore Leonard. I was reading Lawrence Block. Right. Well, I told you, Lawrence yeah. Block sent me an email last night and that's saying that the force killed him. He just loved it. Wow. That, that's just crazy. I, I sat next to Lawrence Block at an Edgar event one time at the old Scrivener's bookstore on Fifth Avenue for two hours. I sat beside the man, afraid to turn my head to the left. I'm serious. To talk to him. To talk to him. And I said, hello. And never said a word. I, I so desperately wanted to get a book signed. <laughs> Couldn't do it. But is that the only time you've met him? Have you met him no. other other than that? Um, that we did, we communicate now. But I'm, I'm uh, introducing you guys. I, um, but yeah, but but the, you know, uh, the, you started reading those books. Yeah, I started reading those books. I was a PI here in the city, New York, where we are. So Matt Scudder meant something to you. Oh. Matt Scudder meant a lot to me, you know, but the writing of those books, Block and Leonard, Charles Williford, you know, Jim Thompson. Right. I mean, they're all, it's funny, those guys, so like you, I know those books really well. Yep. They all wrote so differently. Yeah. Some with incredibly clean and precise right. prose, yep. some with uh, prose that's like this giant mosaic of stuff. Yeah, James Crumley. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Williford too. I mean, his stuff isn't Absolutely. like Larry Block's, no, which no. is unadorned. Right. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly and, what you mean. Because you and you have the capacity to do both things. Uh, but but it seems to me like in this in this second big long period, starting with Bobby Z, you're pretty interested in the kind of power yeah. of torrents of words. Yeah, I, I got interested in that in a big way. <laughs> yeah. <Seriously. laughs> no, which is what I did. I mean, you know, it's yeah, it, I think both of us have a sweet tooth for that stuff and a yeah. real I just finally went for it. Look, my career was going nowhere, right? You mean through these five books? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, selling 12 books or whatever the hell it was and and still working, you know. And I'm on a train, right? And uh, commuting from Orange County to downtown LA, Raymond Chandler country. Yeah. You know, I was working out of the Biltmore Hotel on a case. Those books are the best, by the way. If you haven't read Chandler, read Chandler. You have to read There's Chandler. There's nothing like it. It's the best thing ever. Best of, Sorry. The long goodbye, the best thing best ever. Best thing ever. Go ahead. So, um, You're on and a train. I'm, I'm on a train and I'm writing and I, I'm looking at it on the screen and it sucks. <laughs> like I'm so bored, you know, <laughs> reading and writing my own stuff. I'm just looking at it and went, no wonder no one's buying this. It's, you know, it's bad. It's boring. And so um, I hit delete on the whole thing. And I thought I'm starting over because it doesn't matter. My career's over. I'm just going to amuse myself. And so I started writing in the present tense instead of the past tense. Right. What would happen if I did that? And I started having fun again. It was alive. 
It was alive because and immediate. That's the thing about, I'm so glad that you just told that story because that is the thing about your work. It always feels, from the death of, and life of Bobby Z forward, it has this incredible life to it, this yeah. propulsion to it. There's a joy that you transmit from the one feels in reading the thing, this incredible joy, this ecstatic thing that's happening to you. And you're, it's not self-indulgent because you are transmitting that to us. So is, is rewriting a part of that for you? Absolutely it is. Or do you take stuff? I would imagine a lot of your rewriting is cut is cutting. <laughs> You'd imagine that, would you? You'd imagine that correctly, Brian. <laughs> I would. That's what I would imagine. I um, I'm, <laughs> I'm extremely selfish on the first draft. I just don't care about anybody, uh, and I just write, and I write really fast, like I'm afraid of being caught, which kind of I am. Uh, and as the drafts go by, though, I'm much more aware of the reader. And when I get into those middle range drafts, I really want it to feel, if someone's reading my book, it's like I'm sitting across a bar stool from them or across a table from them, like you and I are sitting here now. And that I'm just telling them a story. Right, you're giving this to them. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, it's, it's intimate, it's, it's immediate. It's just like, you know, we're in a restaurant and I want to say, hey, man, I just heard this thing. Let me tell you about this guy, Denny Malone. But, it, you know, I, I want it to have that kind of feeling between me and the reader. Right. But like you've walked in, like for me, it's like you've walked into a bar and there's this sailor there. Right. <laughs> and he's sailed all over the world. Yep. and He's got these great stories and you're lucky enough to be in his presence for a period of time. And you're going to hear it with all that kind of color and life because it does seem like part of what you do is go out. Yeah. And try to find a story worth telling. Oh, absolutely. But funny you should say that because as as we alluded to, my dad was a sailor and he'd have his buddies over. And they're all non-coms, chief petty officers, Marines, right? Tough, tough, funny guys. Well, I used to get literally, literally under the table. Old definition of literally people. Definition Thank number you. one of literally. Definition number one. Sorry, you're right. And he would pretend to not know I was there. Great. Oh, that's great. So I literally sat at the feet of some of the great storytellers ever. Wally Fleet, Ralph Caldwell, my dad, some of these other people, Carol Schiff. I remember them to this day. Have you put their names and stuff? I have not. Maybe I should. Some maybe of those are really good names. Really good names. And they would, they voyaged, like you said, trips all over the world and they were you know the drinking beers and they'd start telling the stories got better every year and uh so uh, i thought you know man if it, it, being a storyteller that was, that was just the best stuff ever so it's you bring up your dad yeah and you told me before that your dad had this like incredible loyalty to the country and fought in world war ii but mm -hmm. then when when it came time for you to go to vietnam yeah he wouldn't let you go right and can you talk about that evolution and how it affected your own view of loyalty? Because as we circle back to this idea that I'm so fascinated by in your <laughs> You're work, disciplined, man. You were <laughs> but relentless I, might be another word. Well, I, I mean, I put the time in. Yeah, uh, no, I, I appreciate um, it too. I, no, but I want to talk about how that affected your own view. Because, right, you grow up in a house where guys are always talking about the honor of doing that. Yes. Of serving. Absolutely. So as a young man, you would, of course, think, well, that's my duty. That's right. 
So what did it feel like when that shift in him happened? What did it tell you about the world? It was a seismic shift for me. Absolutely seismic shift. How old were you? I would have been 18 because I was being drafted, you know, to go to Vietnam. Uh, my dad was, I would have described him as a hawk up until that moment in time. And uh, I was ready to go. You thought you had to, right? Absolutely. Even though I was against the war, by the way. I thought I I needed to go. And he hadn't given you any signal prior to that? None. He wasn't, he was a big storyteller, but it wasn't like a big in the emotional sort of like- No, no, God. Back and forth. No, 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 no. It was just more forth. <laughs> So, so what happened? So how does it happen? Sitting at the dining room table, night before the draft physical, and I have a screwed up knee from playing hockey, uh, and thought, and then my dad looks at me and he says, uh, I'm not letting you go to that goddamn war. Wow. My mother's head snapped back, my head snapped back. He said, we have family in Canada, you're going there. And he said, they don't intend to win that war. They're just going to kill a lot of young guys. And you're not going to be one of them. Huh. And uh, we're just dead silence in this room. Then, I don't know if I told you this part of the story, or if you have time for this. I have time. Says, um, anyway, the Navy has you down as a cripple. That's the word he used then. I no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. We're looking at him. He said, when you were about three years old, you were falling down a lot. He was a medic. So I took you into the Navy doctors, and they discovered you have an extra bone in your back. And they said, you'll never run, you'll never play sports, and you'd probably be able to walk okay. He said, I never told you and I never told your mom, because I didn't want you growing up, not doing things. So, but he said, but officially in the Navy records, you're handicapped. So if it comes to that, I'm pulling those records. So I grew up climbing trees, playing hockey, playing baseball, getting into fights, getting, you know, and my back hurt. But I thought that's what happens when you when play you hockey. When you, it's your back hurts. Still does. Which it is, by the way, part of what happens. Part of what happens, sure. So, um, you know, yeah. But in so did terms he of become someone like he did become in someone your different. head, did it all shift for you in some way? In a lot of ways. And, and it was a lesson about loyalties because his loyalty clearly was to his family. So, I mean, I imagine you took from that various lessons in terms of being a dad on, oh, you bet. on your own. And I imagine you're um, more like emotionally engaged in yeah ways. sure it's we're, it's Some a generational thing isn't it yeah gener generation yeah but i also imagine you passed I, I keep i look at my own notes and i keep writing these questions down which is like um i guess because i wrestle with it too especially in this business how do we not set ourselves up for disappointment when we have an awareness of the way we have the capacity to act right we all have the capacity to be the best version yeah uh, listen, I think which is what you write about a lot, but I'm interested yeah. in it as a human. I, I think the tr the truth of life is 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 we're going to be disappointed at times, and uh, uh, the key to it is, you know, to get beyond it. You know, you realize disappointment is part of life. We all have them. 
everybody has them. You know, I'm telling this to young writers all the time. You know, say, okay, you, you got rejected. Everybody gets rejected in every field will experience rejection. Everybody will experience disappointment. I don't care if you're a writer, you're a plumber, you're a president, you're the pope. Everybody's going to get rejected at something. Everyone's going to be disappointed by something. Oh, yeah. I just thought of a different way to think about it. Uh, I was thinking just let a bunch of your books just come through my head. And I guess because twinned with this idea of the disappointment is that one way out is to find your people. Mm -hmm. And... Right, because very often in your books they start with an, whether it's the Force, or if it's uh, Kings of Cool, or you know Dawn Patrol and Gentlemen's mm. Hour, yeah. are really about these insular communities of people who have code. They are, and about what happens if you deviate from it, yep. and how you're brought back in, yeah, um, how you're held to a standard. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, in life, have you constructed that for yourself at all? Do you have a, a, a cohort? Who, sure. Do you keep each other honest in that way? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, I think, and we're very loyal to each other. Uh, listen, I have flaws beyond counting, yeah, uh, and have committed sins beyond counting. Disloyalty typically ain't one of them. Right. If you throw in, you throw in. Yeah. If you're my guy, you're my guy. Even, by the way, if you're wrong. Sure. <laughs> you know, maybe especially if you're wrong. You know what I mean? I ain't leaving. And uh, so uh, I, I think you do. You, you, but there are very few people in your life that are going to do that with you. Yeah. You know? And that's just the truth, man. That's just reality. Well, it's one of the most fun parts of reading your books is imagining that these, that these groups do exist. But they do exist. Well, it's hard to find them, though. It, well, it is. It definitely is. You know, Denny and I mean, his those are brother cops. But again, I don't want to give away too much in the book. But you know. I don't want to give it away either. But it's all tested, as it is in all of these books. These ideas end up uh, end up becoming tested. I, I, you know, I asked this question. You kind of answered. I, I had it in my head, which is that in your books, men often live second lives. Yeah. Even young men, they get this new beginning. Yeah. Which I guess to you is, do you, do you feel like, so you had that big moment of a second life in a way. Yeah. And then in a way a third because a third. you as a, a successful writer. Brian, my, my career has been dead so many times. I should have bought a cemetery plot. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, rebirth is <laughs> nothing new to me. And so you, you mentioned once that you, you'd... It would be fun to write something for like Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Have you have you chased any of that down? No, that not really, not yet. I've been busy, you know. But I love sports writers, and I love sports writing. You know, I'd love to read your book about sports writers. Uh, that would be great. Um, you do you write when you're on the road? Do you keep your routine? Like no, not not when I'm on the road this intensely. And how much time do you take in between books? What? How much time do you take not writing in between books? I finished the cartel before lunch on a Tuesday and started the force after lunch. Oh, it is like Trollope. You are like Trollope because that's what he would do. I'm mentally ill. Um, and you, did you, but had you done the research for this already? I was, I was deep into it, yeah. So you were then doing the thing where in the mornings you were finishing the yeah. one book and in the afternoons you were researching the other exactly. one. Exactly. And I so is be, that typical? Typical. You're, and, and 
how do you sift your ideas? That's just another practical question. In other words, how do you sift what the next product, so, right? Because this wasn't the only idea that surfaced as a possible book for you. Oh, no. no. So how does it? How does that process happen of like, well, I have these couple of ideas. How, what, how do you lean or how do you decide? Do you pitch it to anybody or do yeah, you just you know, Shane, Shane, Shane Soler and I talk about it quite a bit. That's, that's one issue. The other issue, though, is just falling in love. You know, it's like, uh, this sounds airy-fairy. I don't mean it to. I, I think it's more often the case where the book picks you. You know, there's an old saying in surfing and rodeo, wave or horse, pick your metaphor. You know, that, that sometimes you ride the wave, but sometimes well, the wave rides you. It's the Guy Clark song. Yeah. Sometimes you write the song and sometimes the, the song, song writes, writes you. you. Yeah. And I, I think- Which is a great song. If I'm going to be, yeah, Guy Clark's a great songwriter. I, I think that if I'm going to be really honest, uh, and why not, you know, at this phase of the the game, uh, I think it's more often that that the book picks me. And uh, oh, I, I know we're getting to the the end here. Um, I, I'm interested in uh, something personal in a way, which is that it does seem that for a long time you enjoyed being at a remove from your audience. That mm-hmm. you were doing your thing and you were kind of hermetically sealed off. Yeah. But you've opened yourself up. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm wondering two things. One, why? And two, <laughs> and two, is it rewarding? Is that rewarding to you? Do you get something out of it? Because you are active on Twitter, which mm-hmm. you're among the last people I thought would. <laughs> in, like, um, It's obvious I'd be all over it, right? Yeah. But you're among the last people I thought would be really active and engaging in that way. So what brought you to it and what what is it that you get out of out of cracking yourself a little bit and revealing some of yourself? You know, years ago, before I made it, as it were, as a writer, I took one of those um, tests, what they call, you know, employment kind of test. I'm searching for a word and it's not coming. And um, I tested off the charts, off the charts, on both the introvert and extrovert. Sure. A born and, performer. And they said, we don't know what to do with you, you know? So I, I think that, that part of me is is very hermetic. Uh, I, I would say that I'm essentially a private person. Uh, you know, I work alone and, and, and I don't have a problem being alone. At the same time, yeah, I, I think a couple of things. That's probably not really good for me, you know. Uh, but the other thing is that um, the kind of books I've written lately and the subjects I've written about make me angry. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I, I went into a rant yesterday at Bryant Park. Man, I'm embarrassed about it. I just went off. Some poor bastard asked me a question and... Yeah. Well, you know, I asked you about corruption in the drug war a couple of <laughs> oh, years no. ago. Sorry. No, and, and you were obviously writing this book because you said, like, you can't talk about corruption in the drug war without talking about the corruption right here. Yeah, yeah. And and so that's part of it. For you want the microphone now because you actually want to talk about this shit beyond just writing fiction about it. I do. Um, did cartel, met a lot of people, and lost a lot of people. Uh, 
What do you mean lost a lot of people? People died. People were killed. Oh, people in the drug on yeah. both sides of the drug war. Drug war died of overdoses. You know, uh, so uh, yeah. To be perfectly honest with you, I'm angry about some things, and I, I guess maybe it's healthy to get them off your chest. Well, yeah, I, I, and there's another thing I wrote a couple of years ago, which even applies more, which is that in your work, the higher up politicians go, the worse they seem they are. Yeah. And you seem to treat them, I would say, with the least amount of empathy. <laughs> I'm and not very nice to them. Is it because you think they're the most conscious of what they're selling? That they're yeah, the, absolutely. Is that part of why? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look. When, you think they're making okay, it? They're aware of the I, trade? You do it. I'm going to get pissed. I mean, look. You, you go to New Hampshire on a campaign and you're talking to families who have lost their children to drug overdoses and you stand there and you tell them you're going to fix that by building that wall, which is a disgraceful sham. I mean, you know I'm with you. I'm speechless about it. Right. Right. So I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. No, but no I, it seems so, like you're you're willing to that the, that that the characters who aren't quite the, the characters who are still actually risking something physical every day, you find empathy for, it seems. Absolutely. Even the bad guys, because at least they're backing it up. They're on the line. On the line. Right. So whether it's a bad guy in uh the Dawn Patrol right. or it's a bad guy good guy, bad guy in the force. Danny Malone, yeah. You're, you're able to ultimately, whether you forgive him or not, you're able to uh, understand and empathize with him. I'd say that's and true. And to feel he's a tragic figure because um, of the hubris. Right. Whereas it seems like for you, when you write a politician, the people he has to deal with, yeah. for those people, because they're not physically on the line, you, it seems to me, don't have much a hope for their possible redemption. They don't pay the price. Don Winslow is interested in people who pay the fucking price. Yeah. And sadly, we're all going to pay the price. Sooner or later, man, whether we know it or not, <laughs> we're going to pay the price. I cannot thank you. Listen, this is, uh, dude, thanks so much for coming thank back and doing this. Thank you so much for this. having me, man. You know. Um, it's good to see you. Yeah. Your work, I, you know, your work just means a sh just a ton you, to me, man. You. And, mutual, um, you know, we're... and you know, uh, you do too. So thanks for being here. You can find Don Winslow uh, on Twitter if he doesn't get killed researching the next book. <laughs> and um, you can find me on Twitter too. You can also email me, themoatbk at gmail.com. But um, don't send me any movie ideas, pictures, or anything like that, or I will send one of Winslow's characters <laughs> to hunt you down. But go by and read The Force. I, if you read The Force and you don't like it, um, I won't give you a money back guarantee or anything like that, but I, I will think less of you if you don't like it. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, Don Winslow, thanks a lot. Hey, thank you, Brian. <laughs>